Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. Well, friends, it's fantastic to be with you again. And if you are watching that screen and you're interested to know more about Alpha, you're in luck because I'm here talking about Alpha this morning. My name is Michael, and um, I get the privilege of leading our family of churches. But I love coming to New York, Kulangata, number one, because I get to hang out with Scott a lot more. He's one of my favorite people in life. Who loves Scott? But there was a risk. It was a risk. But they came to the table and they, they clearly said they love you. So uh, I'm excited to be with you today. And, it, you know, it, it's, I mean, I was only here two weeks ago. Some of you are like, how come you're back so early? It's because Scott, you know, gave me some notes after my last sermon. Said, hey, here's some stuff I would improve. Um, here's some things I'd change. Hey, champ, why don't you come back and give it another shot in two weeks' time? So here I am again, friends. So he said that we'll know how we do by the way people say amen. Amen. Nailed it. All right. Hey, what we're going to do today is I would love you to open your Bibles. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but I want to challenge you. Back in my day, we used to bring our Bibles to church. And so you might have a Bible in front of you that's technology. That, that's technology. Turn that on. Swipe to the right screen. If you've got a physical Bible, that's awesome. But either way, let me just challenge. What if we started to just bring our Bibles again to church? That's so important. Here's the reason why. You don't know if what I'm reading or it's on the screen is actually in the Word of God. I could say to you, in the book of Hezekiah, it says that we are all going to get Ferraris and have big mansions one day. Now, for those of you who have a Bible in front of you, you'll know the book of Hezekiah doesn't actually exist. Some of you are like, wow, I was turning there and I was trying to find out this truth. So just a way for us to do this together. So we're going to be reading a really long chapter in the Bible today. It's Luke chapter 15. And as we do, I want you to brace yourselves. It's not a short chapter, uh, but it's a good one. It's a good one. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's a good one. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you have a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home and calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has a silver coin and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and sit, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, him, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. You never disobeyed your orders, that you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Friends, we join me as we pray. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come before you today, we just recognize that when you were challenged, when you were given a reputation, you responded with these three stories. Stories that demonstrate your heart, who you are, but also who we're called to be. So Lord Jesus, challenge us today. Shape us, mold us, that we might become more like you. Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, come on guys, all God's people said, already Scott's writing notes. So you just remember, you got to be with me. So today, I want to make a confession to you all. I lose things all the time. Does anyone else lose things all the time? Wow, only one in this service. That's awesome. The rest of you, hey, it's awesome being you guys. Uh, I lose things all the time. So much so that people are kind of, they know this about me now. Weirdly enough, I was telling this story in the first service and, uh, and, and I actually lost the clicker for the PowerPoint slides like two minutes before the sermon started. And Lisa came up to me. She's like, hey, that was a really apt story for the fact that you lost our clicker. I'm like, wow, that's so respectful. That's so lovely. But there's this moment where a couple of years ago, I planted a church. It's called New Life Brisbane. It was one of our church plants up in the center of Brisbane City. And it was great. We had a bunch of people come along and I was excited. We had to set up and pack down our church every week. And every week for the first little while, the same thing would happen. The church would get packed down and I would turn around and, and I'd try to find my keys. I could never find them. And so I'd turn to the people and I'd be like, hey guys, um, has anyone seen my keys? Now in the early days, it was great culture. It was awesome. The pastor lost his keys. So everybody's on board. So Pastor Michael's lost his keys, guys. It was 60 people scouring the church for the noble church planters' keys in the middle of the building. Then the second week came by and I'm like, guys, I've lost my keys again. They're like, Michael, what's the chances? Two weeks in a row. Who would have thought? Everyone, let's go search for the keys again. Now, after about three months, of me losing something. Now, this is not an exaggeration. Ella McLean was actually on that team. I was talking to her about it between the services. She was like, it was horrible. It was horrible. By the third, by the third month of me, I think it was like my wallet as well. So this service would finish. Be like, hey guys, um, does anyone know what my service, my, my wallet is? And instead of anybody championing the cause, 
there was just this like dull grumble that would come from the people like, they didn't call me pastor anymore. Like guys, old mate's lost his keys again. Oh my gosh. And there was only ever one person that would still be like, they had to roster someone on, like the person who found the pastor's keys every week because everyone else just wanted to go home. In fact, it was usually Ella who was that person at that point. But something happened, right? In the beginning, everyone was on board. Everyone was excited. Everyone's like, lost keys. We can do this together. After the third month, this deep-seated apathy came upon our people where they didn't, they, they, I don't know if they just chose to not love me or whatever it was, but they decided that they were no longer passionate about finding my keys. And that's understandable, right? Like you talk to my wife. If I go home to my wife and I'm like, hey, I lost my sunglasses. She's like, yeah, of course you did. Yeah, that's fine. Every time I buy something, she's like, can we afford to lose that? I'm like, yes, we're fine. This is a car. Don't get off my back. I haven't lost my kids yet though. So praise God. Um, still time. They're still young. So there's this moment where we're like, everyone around me has this lethargy and apathy around me. Why? Because to Michael to have things means things get lost. And so people just, they know this now. No one gets that worried when I lose things. And for those of you who come up to me after the service, like, you need one of those tile things, those Bluetooth things? Yeah, I got one of those. They run out of battery eventually, and you can't replace the battery if you can't find the keys. So nothing works with me. The reason why I say this is because I wonder if the church at times has a similar apathy around lost things. Not because God loses things. Not because God is the one that's forgetful but because the immensity of what is lost in our world can sometimes seem too big. So Scott hops up here and Mika hops up here again. And we're like, hey guys, Alpha's coming. And I guarantee you, there are some people in the crowd right now who are thinking, ah, it's someone else's problem. I hope that person invites someone to Alpha. I hope that person knows someone that doesn't know Jesus. And we have grown apathetic at times or lethargic towards things that are lost. And the problem with that is, is we serve a God who never grows tired of lost people. See, the church has a drift, doesn't it? Now, if you've grown up in the church, you'll know this. You'll know we have a drift. We have a drift in the people of God to continually become more and more about ourselves. We have more events, more programs, more meetings, more committees. Why? To serve the people who go to the church already. We talk about colors of carpet and colors of walls and air conditioning temperatures and all these things that are about things that make me more comfortable. But the minute we start talking about alpha, the minute we start talking about something else, I don't know, maybe it's just me. This warm lethargy settles on us, doesn't it? Ah, it's too hard. We did this last year and the year before. Maybe this year is the year for the break. But what Jesus does is when he's surrounded by a group of religious people called the Pharisees, and he's having dinner at their house. We find this out in Luke chapter 14. Then what also happens in this moment is that Jesus finds that it's not just the Pharisees that gather around him, but these other people called tax collectors and sinners, they come to the table. And there's this weird moment where, where this doesn't make sense because back in those days, to come and eat with someone meant you were associated with them. And tax collectors, they weren't well liked. They were traitors. They were Jewish people who would take money from their people and give it to the Romans. No one liked tax collectors. And then sinners, well, that's a pretty broad term, isn't it? But we could fit a lot into that. Who were the sinners? Who knows? Maybe prostitutes, maybe people who had failed, maybe murderers, terrorists. Who knows? Or maybe it's just people who everyone just knew weren't the kind of people you wanted to eat with. But these people, for some reason, friends, 
they overcame every cultural obstacle of not being welcome at the table with Pharisees. And they chose to come eat with Jesus. And what did the Pharisees say? Look at this man. This man eats with sinners and with tax collectors and he dines with them. They said it to Jesus as a curse and Jesus wore it as a badge of honour. But here's a question I want to ask us, Kulungata. What's our reputation? What do people know our church for? What kind of people find themselves around our tables? The morally upright? Those transitioning from other churches? Hey, and there's nothing wrong with that. I came to New York from another church. That's, that's, I'm not, not slamming that at all. It's just not the mission. It's just not the mission. Or do people look at us and go, you should see the kind of people that go to New Life Cool and back out of man. It's wild. I don't know if they know, but there's a bunch of sinners in that church. And we're like, yes, there is. See, in response to this, Jesus tells them three stories. Three stories because he's trying to tell the religious and the upright, hey, you've missed the point here. You've missed the point. Instead of celebrating with me that they're at your table, you use it as a curse against me. He tells them three stories in Luke chapter 15, which I think is one of the most beautiful passages of Jesus' ability to craft story and preach a sermon without saying, this is about you. In three stories, he tells the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. But in these three stories, he reveals to us three things, the state of man, the character of God, and the cause for celebration. And friends, as we prepare for Alpha, but even if it's not about Alpha, as we go about being more like Jesus, can I tell you, if you're going to be more like Jesus, I guarantee you this, there are going to be more people in your world that the world asks why they're eating at your table. To be more like Jesus is to hang out with those the world don't think have a place. That's who we are. And to these morally upright, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And in these stories, the first thing he does is he talks about the state of man. What does he tell us? Now, state of man, I'm using that like as a parenthetical term. So the state of humanity, the state of men and women. What is the state of humanity? And to tell us, when we read these stories, a good question we can ask when we read the Bible is, God, you know, what is this revealing to me about you? Which is a really most important question. Second question, hey, God, what is this saying about me? And about who I'm called to be? Or maybe who I am? And in this story, we have to ask the question, when Jesus talks about sheep, we have to ask, what was Jesus telling us about the state of man? Well, the first story about sheep is really quite, um, you know, not great, great complimentary to us. In this story about sheep and shepherds, who do you think we are? For those of you who said shepherd, wrong. Friends, we are the sheep. Now, some of you might be encouraged by that. All those of you from New Zealand, that might be really good encouragement for you. Some of you might be a little bit horrified by that. Be like, I don't want to be a sheep. There's a good reason for that. You see, if you go read commentaries or theologicals, or you actually go into the Greek and, and, and the Hebrew of what, what Jesus is trying to say here, the, the reason why we should be insulted by the fact that we're likened to sheep is simply this. Sheep are stupid. That's pretty much it. And you might be like, Michael, are you, are, are you calling me stupid? In a way, yes, I am. I'm also calling myself stupid. Now, stupid might be a negative word there, but the Bible is really fast to liken humanity to sheep. Why? Well, have you ever been around sheep? 
have you ever run at a sheep? I have. In a field in England once, I was caught in this moment where I was like surrounded by 100 sheep with a mate called Matt. And I'm like, Matt, let's see how we would go as shepherds. Let's just run at the sheep and see what they do. Needless to say, there is a good reason why sheep are kept in pens and have shepherds. They have a terrible survival rate. Those guys are not smart at all. No matter if you run at them, they're in fear and they think they're running away from you because they don't know what's going on. Sometimes they're running towards you. Be like, ah! You're like, well, don't run at me, run away from me. And then they run away from you to like a corner. And you're like, now you're cornered. And the sheep's like, meh. Like, it's like, it doesn't understand. Why? Because sheep are intrinsically stupid animals. That's fine. I love sheep. If you're like, you know, you're pro animals, so am I. Let's protect them. But we can't be dishonest about them. They're not smart. And the Bible even says this in Isaiah chapter 53. If those of you are like, Michael, show me where the Bible says I'm a sheep. Here you go. Isaiah chapter 53, it simply says this. The, the, the prophet Isaiah is writing about what humanity is like. He says, we all, not some of us, not the person who smells next to you, you, we all like sheep have gone astray. No one was grew up in Sunday school. Does anyone remember the line? We all like sheep have gone astray. Ba, ba, do, ba, ba. Who remembers? Who doesn't remember? You had a good childhood if that's you. That's awesome. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on Him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. When talking about the state of humanity, the prophet goes, you want to know how best to understand it? You guys are sheep. Why? Because sheep, number one, they act as herd animals. They follow each other. Number two, they also walk astray. They walk astray. You leave a sheep to its own devices, it doesn't go, where is the most logical place for me to head? It's like, I shall go over here. And it's walking to a cliff. And now we might see that and go, oh, Michael, that's not really, it's not really, really? Left to your own devices, friends, how well has your life turned out? Like you're under your own leadership, under your own governance, under your own wisdom. Is everything gone well? Hey, for me, when the Bible says, Michael, you are like a sheep, and I know how stupid she, I'm like, somebody sees me. Someone actually knows me. As smart as we pretend we are, friends, I think there are those of you here who know. Friends, we go astray all the time, don't we? In our heart, in our head, I get frustrated with myself. But there's a comfort here that goes, you're human. The Bible called this sin. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The state of man is that mankind is, is, by nature, wayward. On our own, friends, we are not able to save ourselves. There is a comfort in that because it says you are seen and you are known. But it doesn't just say that we're like sheep. What is the second story? The second story is about a woman and her coins. She has 10 coins and she loses one. Now, if you're insulted about the sheep, you're going to be even more insulted about the coin. Because the coin is an inanimate object. Like if you thought sheep were stupid, coins don't think at all. If you lose a coin and you go around your house, and you're like, coin, where are you? You don't hear this, behind the couch. <laughs> right? You don't. Why? Coins don't talk. If your coins do talk, see somebody. That's hugely important. Coins don't talk. What's Jesus trying to say here? He's actually trying to be really clear. The coin can't find its way home. The coin can't find its way home. Now, I just want to talk to those of you who are followers of Jesus in the room. This is really humbling. Really humbling. You're a sheep 
and a coin. You walk off and you can't make your way back. Some of you are like, no, I'm looking for God. Friends, usually in my experience, people who are looking for God, they're striving in a way and are usually frustrated by their own efforts. The Bible is so clear here. What's Jesus trying to say to the Pharisees? You guys think you get in because of your efforts, because of what you've done. You missed it altogether. It is those who know they're helpless, those who know that they've gone astray, those who are, who are wayward. They're the ones who are found. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Tim Keller, says it like this. He's had a woman come up to her, would come up to him once and said, I've heard every sermon you've preached and I'm still looking for God and I haven't found him yet. He just simply said to her this. He said, you are the sheep, not the shepherd. Don't find God. Ask God to come find you. Pray this prayer. Good shepherd, come find me. Here's my experience, friends. God's never said no to that prayer. Because the prayer of helplessness. The state of man is that we go astray. The state of man is that we are helpless. We're not inanimate objects, but in terms of our own decisions, sometimes we act that way. We never want to come home until someone calls us home. But then the third story is even more beautiful. It's a story about a son. A son, and we're painted a picture of here in the state of humanity. What do we see? We see a son who has everything he could want. Has everything. So much so that he even says to the father, give me everything you have that you're going to give me when you die. I want it now. And the father turns around and gives him everything. And the son goes and does what? He squanders it all. Which gives us something to kind of understand here. If we think we're just sheep or just coins, we're like, well, you know, it's just in my nature. I'm not that smart and I'm an inanimate object. So really, I was always going to stuff it up, right? But here Jesus goes, yes, but you're also like the son. You're like the son who was given everything, everything on earth, the breath in your lungs. Everyone take a deep breath in. Here's my question. What did you do to earn that breath? What did you do to earn this life? The story of Christianity, the story of humanity is that we've been given everything we could need and want. God made himself fully available to us. And in response, what have we done with our lives? We said, God, I want everything. I want the environment. I want money. I want, I want a marriage. I want a house. I want it all. But I'm going to use it all for me. For me and my wants and my desires. I want nothing to do with you, God. And we find ourselves in a pig pit, in a metaphorical pig pit of our lives going, man, it didn't work out too well. I think we've, most of us in this room have been there at some stage. And if we haven't, I think we're just, we're, we're on a crash course to a reality going, we are not very good at governing ourselves. Mankind, Christianity would say, is innately selfish. Innately selfish. Think back to the last time you stuffed up. Were you thinking about other people? When you last made a mistake, were you like, I'm prioritizing everybody else? We don't speed because we're conscious of others. We speed because we want to get somewhere faster. Selfishness is the core of our problem. The state of humanity, friends, is that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We, like the coin, are helpless in our lostness. But even if we had this level of intelligence that we all maintain to have, don't we just use it to forward our own selves? Friends, if you're a Christian here today, here's, here's the reason why I say this. Don't forget. See, the Pharisees, they said to him, you eat with sinners. I think Jesus wanted to look them back in the eye and go, yes, that's why I'm at your table. We forget sometimes that we, we were lost. How's the song go? 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like that guy. I always point at Scott, right? And people come up to me like, why don't you like Scott? I love Scott. That's why. Because, you know, I don't know many others, so I'm just trying to be safety. Saved a wretch like what? Like me. See, friends, in Christianity, the truth is this. Our resume doesn't look that great. When was the last time you wrote your resume and you put on it, good at word, can count numbers, effective team leader, wretch? So tell me about the rich part of your resume, right? We don't say it. Why? But in Christianity, it's the only quality that counts. It's the only common thing that we have. Saved a wretch like me. Friends, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ in the room today and you're wondering what qualifies you to become a Christian, it's simply this. It's not how good you are. It's how bad you are. It's how much you need a Savior. Because you're looking at someone that was a wretch and has only been made whole by the goodness and graciousness of Jesus Christ. Because this story doesn't just tell us about the state of man, does it? It tells us about the heart and character of God. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. The Son sent as a shepherd. What a powerful, evocative image. Why is this powerful and evocative? Because he had 99 other sheep. I've done the cost-benefit analysis. He could have lost one and still made it out ahead. It's okay, he would have had enough meat, probably enough wool. It's just one sheep, Jesus. Not for God. See, for God, one's still enough. One's still enough. Well, Jesus does this story. It is a it's a masterful teaching moment. Not only does he give us three analogies of the state of man, he gives us these three pictures of the heart of God. And he says, even if there was one, I would still die. Even if there was one, Easter would still have happened. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He died, for, no, he died not just for men. He died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done none le- no less. Friends, it doesn't matter how big New Life Kulangata grows. Is there still one that doesn't know Jesus? then God's heart is still pressing out to the community, longing for all to come to know Him. That's our heart. That should be our heart. It didn't matter how many had come home if there's still one that is lost. And friends, can I be honest? I fall victim to this all the time. I look at our Easter services across the family. Man, they were great. How good was it seeing the churches packed? But I always forget how many people last weekend didn't hear the gospel. You turn on ABC, no mention of Easter. The Easter AFL matches, they didn't even mention the reason for the holiday. The world is racing towards a moment where if we don't carry the gospel, no one will. If there is one not here, friends, then there is one that it's still worth Christ dying and being resurrected for, then there's still a mission for the local church. Jesus is the son, the shepherd who cares about the one. Friends, you want a number in his ledger as he's balancing the books of salvation. It doesn't look good. We were up on last year. Praise the Lord. You're a name. To Jesus, you're a story. He knows you. He knows you. The second picture gives us a different image of God, doesn't it? It's a woman and a lamp. Now, if you actually read, theologically, many theologians believe that the 10 coins were actually a marriage dowry, a gift given to the woman by her husband's family for the marriage. And so what we're finding out is that this woman may very well have been a bride. 
So we'll look at, well, you know, is God a bride? Why would God paint himself as a bride? If you look through the New Testament, there is really only one kind of imagery of bride ever applied. It's not to a person, it's to a people. It's to the church. The church is known as the bride of Christ. And the oil, the fire, the lamp, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is an image of the Spirit propelling the church to go and sweep the house. Go find that was what was lost. Here's the beauty. Does the coin that was lost lose its value? No, it's just lost. The coin isn't any less valuable. It just hasn't been found yet. And the church is the one who goes, they're out there. We've got to go find. We've got to go seek and save the lost. Not on our own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the beauty of this, friends. This tells us a story of who's actually responsible for salvation. It's not you. It's not on you to save your family. It's not on you to save the Gold Coast or Gatta. That's Jesus' job. But He empowers us to be a part of it. I will save, but if you follow me, if you love me, you will long to be a part of this mission as well. Friends, let me ask you this. Who is the Holy Spirit propelling you out to go find? Who is it? I feel so guilty of this. As a pastor, can I tell you, it is probably the easiest for me to not know any non-Christians. I spend most of my time talking to Christians. I hang out with Christians on Sundays and during the weeks, I catch up with those that have stuff to talk about from Sunday or from other things or want to complain about my sermon. Right? And it's so easy to drift towards insula. So much so, it's like, man, I've got to go to get a, my hair cut by a non-Christian. I've got to be out in the world, not so I can just get these guys to church, but so I can just love the people that Jesus loves as much as He loves the church. The Holy Spirit would propel us out. Friends, we should all have a name on our heart that we're praying for right now, saying, Jesus, would you seek and save this person? You can't become more like Jesus and not grow in the amount of people who don't know Jesus in your world. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. Thank God he did. The last story is a beautiful story. It's a story of a father. Of a father. We have an image of the son as the shepherd. The spirit is the light. Then he paints a picture for us of the Father. Why? Why do you think this is important? Because don't we always hear that line, I really like Jesus. He seems nice. But then this God of the Old Testament, dude, that guy's got something wrong with him. He's scary. What Jesus is saying here is, no, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God doesn't have this, like, you know, split personality where he's changed his mind where Jesus came up about how he would love his people. This is Jesus saying, you want to know what the Father is like? He's waiting on the veranda. Because his heart is broken. He's hoping that that distant speck isn't the mailman. It's his son, it's his daughter. Back in those days, the patriarch of the family, the eldest in the family, never ran. Because they spent most of their time running when they were young. Old men didn't run in the Bible. Old men don't run now, amen? But they didn't have to run because everyone else did it for him. But here in this moment, what do we see? Whilst he was still far off, the father ran, broke every cultural boundary, lifted up what, like, you know, whatever that skirt thing was that they used to wear, and he, he bolted down the driveway. 
Friends, this is not like a father like your father. He doesn't come to the son and go, told you so. Shouldn't have done it, should you? Boy, boy, get over here. Look at your other brother. What a failure he is. Doesn't do that. Doesn't make him apologize to all the family and friends. Doesn't make him pay back, does he? What does he do? Father, I am so worthless. I do not even deserve to be your servant. What does he do? He picks him up. He lavishes with kisses. He says, bring my best robe. My son has come home. This is the heart of the father who's slow to anger, who's filled with compassion, who loves you, who loves you, who runs and he runs and he runs because you are his child. Some of us forgot that. And we've meandering. And some of us are like the elder brother back in the field. See, most of the story is actually about the older brother. He spends most of Luke chapter 15 talking about this older brother. What does the older brother do? He rocks into the story. And what does he say? I've done nothing but serve you. When did you kill the fattened calf for me? When did you celebrate me? My father says, your son, your, your brother was dead. And now he's alive. So the interesting thing is, is that the older brother has fallen into the trap that I think we all fall into. He's served God. He's loved God maybe, but he hasn't had the father's heart. If the older son had the father's heart, where would he have been? In the field? Earning approval? Or would he have been out looking for his younger brother? Saying to him, come home. You are so loved. Come home. Some of us friends in the church today, we think what matters is rocking up on Sundays as if that makes you a better Christian, as if that makes you more loved. Friends, we don't rock up on Sundays to prove anything to God. We rock up on Sundays because we love Him. But then we leave on Sundays. Why? Because we love Him. And we know that His heart isn't to stay here. His heart propels us out into the world. And we're debating, going, God, have I not done enough? God's like, you have all of me. But if you truly were my disciple, if you were truly becoming like me, you wouldn't be trying to find my affection and approval. You know you would have it. And you would be out there on my behalf telling others, you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Stop eating with pigs. Stop doing this dark stuff. You are loved. You are more than this. Come home. Because what we find at the end of this story is how God beautifully, Jesus beautifully tells us the whole Trinity, Father, Spirit, and, and Son are leaning into the mission. Are leaning in. You want to know why? Because I think they love a good party. And there's only one thing that the Bible tells us. Heaven throws down around. Throws down. I don't know if that's the right term. No, probably not. I'm 34. I'm getting old. That heaven, heaven has a party around. What is it? When one sinner repents, heaven rejoices more than with the 99 who didn't need repentance. Heaven doesn't celebrate people who think they've got it right. Heaven celebrates when those who know they've got it wrong come home. Friends, here's what I learned. I learned two things. Number one, We've got to have greater cause for celebration in the church. Here's what I know. Christians, we are so lame at parties. Amen? I've been to some parties with some of you. They're lame. 
right? Now, what I mean by that is we, we kind of like we play down. Like we politely clap in church. We go out. I actually haven't been to Easter celebrations here on Sunday, but I've been to some celebrations of like baptisms in church. And it's like everyone's politely clapping when someone comes out of the water. Heaven's not polite. Heaven's like yelling. They're dancing. They're throwing beats down. Like they've got Keith Green up there. It's going off. Right? Why? Because heaven knows how to party. Because the greatest thing that could happen is for a lost son or a daughter to come home. And I've got to say, man, we've got to learn how to party a bit better. Why? Because then we would actually be like, hey, we've got to go find the lost. Why? Because we want to party with them in a way that only the kingdom knows how to party, where the lost come home, where the darkness turns to light, where hopelessness becomes hopeful. Friends, here's my thing. Here's what I want to ask you. The thing that propelled Jesus, do you know what it was? The reason why He went to the cross? The reason why He did all of this? It was simply for this. He didn't go to the cross because there was nothing better to do or because He thought it would be you know, the only way. It was more than that. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 2, it's going to be halfway down the screen in just a moment. It says this, For the joy that was before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did Jesus die? It wasn't because it felt good. It wasn't because He thought it was going to be a fun time. But there was a joy that was before Him. So He endured the the shame and he, He scorned the shame and He endured the cross. Do you want to know what the joy was? It was you. His joy was you. He endured the cross because he thought one day you might come home and it was all counted worthwhile. There was a motivation for Christ that we have lost, friends. He endured the cross and scorned the shame. And I find in my life, someone says, hey, you should invite someone to Alpha. And I'm like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit humiliating, isn't it? Pales in comparison to the cross, doesn't it? Pales in comparison. Hey, have you tried Alpha? It's a pretty easy humiliation to endure to find someone that doesn't yet know Jesus come to know Jesus. It might even not be Alpha friends. It might just be, hey, I'd love to grab a coffee. I'd love to have you over for dinner. Hey, me, a bunch of friends of me from church are getting around. We're, just, we're going out tonight. We'd love to. Why don't you come have dinner with us? Oh, I couldn't do that, Michael. Jesus felt it well worth his while to become a human, give up the throne, become like a servant, be humiliated and scorned and seen as a failure on Friday and a victory on Sunday, all for the joy that was before him. Friends, what is the joy that is before this church? What is the joy that is before us? That one day we would sit with Jesus with many brothers and sisters that have come to know him and be like, it was all worthwhile. So who's your one? Who's your one? I said this at the end. I'm going to say it now. This church was built on a Luke 15 legacy. A couple of years ago, a group of people in Twin Towns Uniting Church got together and they said, guys, we sense that God's not done here yet, but we need some help to reach the lost. So they invited New Life to come down and church plant there and this, this rough guy called Scott came along and, and we planted a church because a group of people said it's not about us. That's the shoulders we stand upon today. What will be the reputation of this church? What kind of people will walk through those doors? 
if they're going to look like us, friends, we're, it's just not okay. This should be a church that has a reputation. Be like, do you know who goes there? And we're like, how good is it? See, if people who swear are rough around the edges, angry and frustrated at God and work on wolves, if they're not allowed to be in the church, friends, you wouldn't have a pastor. Scott Wrigley came into the church about, what, 11 years ago, 12 years ago now without knowing Jesus. Why? Because God called him. And thank God that on that Sunday, we weren't a bunch of uptight Christians that were like, who are you? Why? Because now this man is a man that teaches people to follow Jesus, inspires me to follow Jesus. There are more Scott Wrigley's in the world, friends. Who's your one? Let's bow our heads and pray to God. There's some of you right here now today where you don't feel like you belong in church. You don't feel like this is where you should be. There's something about just being here. You're not sure why, but when I talk about going astray, when I talk about feeling helpless, you feel that. You feel that profoundly. And I just want to let you know, the story doesn't finish with your helplessness. That Jesus, today, you didn't choose to come here as much as he drew you here for a reason and a purpose because he's standing at the doorway of your heart and he's knocking and saying, will you let me in? Will you give your life to me? Will you allow the good shepherd to find you? His sheep. Friends, if that's you today and you know that you need a better savior, you need a better shepherd, you want to respond to the fact that God has done all he can to make a way for you to come home. If you want to come home today and know Jesus as your Lord, your savior, and be forgiven and find a home. I wonder, would you just raise your hand wherever you are? I want to pray for you. If you'd love me to pray that for you, I'd love you to just raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hmm. Friends, we don't know if anyone's raised their hands today, but I want to pray for a second group of people then. A group of people, maybe you're here today and you have a one. And you're scared it's a son or a daughter. And you're like, I don't know how to reach them. I want to let you know that God does. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a one yet. You're feeling the weight of that. Friends, don't go out and be a Pharisee and try to get someone just to be good. Ask God, God, who are you showing to me? Who are you revealing to me? Holy Spirit, where are you leading me? Hey, if either of those two things are you today, I'd love you just to open your hands. If you have a one you'd love us to pray for, or if you are longing today, hey, God, I... I don't really have someone I'd want to invite to Alpha or even someone I want to invite into the kingdom. Um, I just love you. Open your hands in front of you today. Lord Jesus, I just pray for everyone with their hands open right now. And God, I ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that for those ones that are on their heart, that Lord, that they would see salvation ring out over their lives, that they would know that Jesus is risen, that he is alive and that he loves them. Lord God, I pray for those today who don't yet have someone. Father, fill them with your heart, inspire them with your beauty that we'd remember that once we were the wretch that you saved. So we, where we see others come to know, be blind and now see from darkness to light. Even just in this moment, I pray, drop a name on our heart right now. Lord, I thank you that you are good. You love the people in our world more than we do. So we join you in your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.